And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Hang on a minute. Who put you in charge? And who the hell are you anyway? I'm the Doctor. I'm a Time Lord. I'm from the planet Gallifrey, the constellation of Castelbarus. I'm 903 years old, and I'm the man who's going to save your lives and all six billion people on the planet below. You got a problem with that? No. In that case, I don't see. Would you like a jelly baby? Of Who True Freaks, a Doctor Who show on the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Hi, everyone. My name is Sean Engel, and this time out, we're covering the third iteration of the Doctor. This is the John Pertwee era, and we're looking at an episode this time that deals with gargoyles, magic, strange hoof beasts, and Thomas DJ as well. So let's go ahead and look at the panel that we have here for the show. We're starting out with, uh, I'll just go around my Skype window, starting out with the Irredeemable One. Hey, Shag. How's it going? I'm glad you mentioned Thomas, because when I saw the episode and they talked about the Devil's Hump, couldn't help but think about him. Nice. Moving on to uh, the aforementioned person, we've got also with us Mr. Thomas DJ. How's it going, Thomas? Well, you know, I'm half blind right now. i got to hydrate. Hydrate! And, uh... (laughs) By the way, fuck you, Shag. <laughs> good morning. Good morning. <laughs> it's always a good Hootroo Freaks when we can get that in. Uh, bringing in the first of our British contingents, well, not British, our UK contingents, all the way over from the Emerald Isle, Mr. Dave Walker. Hey, Dave. Hey, how's things? Okay, and uh, from our, our Florida contingent, as we've discussed before, it's America's Wang, Mr. Bill Robinson. How's it going, Bill? Pretty good. This podcast smells to me of failure. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, just wait. It hadn't even begun. And finally on our list, our second in our UK contingent, the ever-excellent podcaster, Mr. Andrew Leyland. How's it going today, Andrew? It's fine. Thank you for inviting me again. 
I'm glad to have you on. So today we are taking a look at uh, an episode of the, uh, like I said before, of the John Pertwee era, uh, an episode called The Demons. And to start us off, we have a synopsis by Mr. Stephen Lacey, read affectionately by Dave Walker. Steve couldn't make it because he's, well, he's out with family. I was going to make a comment that he was, you know, finding another booty call, but, you know, that would be crude, Bob especially when he's Dewey. dealing with his grandmother. So, <laughs> if you are ready, uh, Dave, take yeah. us away. Okay, the demons. Previously on Doctor Who, exiled on Earth for interference in the affairs of other species and planets, the Doctor has found himself in the unofficial role of scientific advisor to the United Nations Intelligence Tax Task Force, or UNIT. After an unspecified period of time spent attempting to undo the Time Lord meddling that has disabled his TARDIS, and occasionally repelling alien invasions, the Doctor finds himself being warned by those very same Time Lords that his old foe, the Master, has arrived on Earth. Supported by his new assistant, Joe Grant, and the might of unit in the form of Brigadier Lethbridge Stewart, Sergeant Benton and Captain Yates, the Doctor matches wits with the Master across Series 8, defeating his plans involving the nesting consciousness, the Mind Parasite, the Axon Collective, and the Doomsday Machine on planet Uxareus. Now, at the end of the series, the two Time Lords are about to meet for their final battle, this year. Written by Barry Letts and Roger Sloman under the pseudonym Guy Leopold and directed by Christopher Barry, The Demons was shown between May 22nd and June 19th, 1971. In the village of Devil's End, an archaeological dig is excavating the infamous Devil's Hump, a Bronze Age burial mound. The dig is being covered by BBC Three, but about 30 years before viewers in the UK would see a channel called BBC Three, or 20 years early, depending on which of the two unit dating theories you sub subscribe to. A local white witch, Olive Hawthorne, arrives to protest, warning of great evil coming of the Horned Beast, but she is dismissed as a crank. Watching this, the Doctor tells Joe that Miss Hawthorne is right. The dig must be stopped, and they go there. Miss Hawthorne goes to see the new local victor, the new local vicar, Reverend Magister. Magister, actually the master, tries to assure her that her fears are unfounded, but his hypnosis fails to overcome her will. Backed by a group of followers, the Master is conducting ceremonies in the cavern below the church to summon up a force of evil. The Doctor and Joe reach the mound, and the Doctor rushes inside to stop the dig, but it's too late. The tomb door opens and icy gusts of wind rush out and the grind begins to shake, toppling the camera crew and even the coven in the catacombs. The Master laughs triumphantly and calls the entity's name, Azal, and the eyes of a gargoyle, Bok, flare with a reddish glow. Joe enters the mine to find Horner and the Doctor motionless, covered with frost. Back at unit, Captain Mike Yates and Sergeant Benton were watching the end of the broadcast as it went dead. In the morning, they arrive at the village just as a heat wave engulfs the village. The Brigadier finds himself unable to enter the village as there is a barrier surrounding it that causes anything trying to enter it to heat up and burst into flame. He contacts Yitz and is briefed on the situation, while the Doctor and Joe return to the dig, where they find a small spaceship in the mound which has been condensed. 
From this, the Doctor realizes that the Master is trying to conjure up an ancient and all-powerful demon, who is seen on Earth to be the devil, but is actually an alien. The Doctor explains that the demons have influenced Earth throughout its history, becoming part of human myth, and see the planet as a giant experiment. The Master has called the demon up once, and right now it is so small as to be invisible. The third summoning, however, could signal the end of the experiment, and the world. The Master summons up Azal again, and demands that he gives him the power that is his right, but Azal warns him that he is not the Master's servant. Azal also senses the presence of another like the Master, and wants to speak to the Doctor to see if he is worthy to take over the world. Azal says on his third appearance, he will decide if Earth deserves to continue existing. If so, he will give it to the Master. Azal then vanishes in another heatwave. The Doctor returns to the village. However, the Master's agents are at work, and he is soon captured by a mob of villagers and tied up to the maypole, about to be burned alive. With the help of Miss Hawthorne and Benton, he escapes. Joe and Yates, meanwhile, have returned to the church cavern and watch as the Master gathers his coven to summon Azal one last time. Joe tries to interrupt the ritual, but it is too late. With another rush of heat, Azal manifests himself and Joe and Yates are taken prisoner. As Joe is prepared as a sacrifice to Azal, the Brigadier manages to get through the heat barrier and enter the village. The Doctor manages to avoid Bach, who is guarding the church, and gets into the cavern, where the Master is expecting him. Outside, unit troops are held back by Bach. The Doctor and the Master both try to appeal to Azal, but for opposite reasons. The huge devil-like figure decides to give his power to the Master, and then fires electricity at the Doctor to kill him. However, Joe steps in front of the Doctor, asking Azal to kill her instead. This act of self-sacrifice does not make sense to Azal, and the confusion sends him into a confused, confused rage. The Doctor tells everyone to flee the church. With Bach also rendered motionless, Azal erupts and the whole church is blown up. The, doc the Master tries to escape, but is captured by unit troops and taken away. The Doctor, Joe, Miss Hawthorne and the unit team join the villagers in their May Day celebrations, and they all lived happily ever after. The end. Awesome. So, so what do we guys, what do we guys think about this show? Especially, what do we think about this Doctor? Especially the the Pertwee iteration of the Doctor. Um. Well, I mentioned last time. I think I've seen three John Pertwee stories. I've seen Spearhead from Space because it was his first one. I saw Planet of the Spiders because it was his last one, and I saw the Time Warrior because Sarah Jane first appeared in it. And every time I've watched him, I've not been greatly impressed with him. I suppose I should put out, for me, John Pertwee's Wurzel Gummidge. He's always going to be Wurzel Gummidge. Doesn't matter whatever else to see him in, he's Wurzel Gummidge. <laughs> is he so, a character in Harry Potter? No, he's not. <laughs> Wurzel Gummidge is a scarecrow that comes to life and can change his heads. And he's in love yeah. with a doll called Aunt Sally. And two kids go and talk to him and they have fun adventures. It was great. You should look it up. It's based on a series of books from something like the... The, the Dark Ages or something. You know, okay, back when people read those. books. What, awesome. books? I remember books. Uh, I so what he's Wurzel Gummidge too. 
he, was, he didn't really do a lot, did he? He hung around with Cat Weasel, if memory serves. Mm. Jeffrey Bailden was in it as well. So he's Wurzel Gummidge, he's not the Doctor. And I'm watching this, and when I see other actors who have played the Doctor in other things, I normally don't think, oh, it's the Doctor. I didn't think that when I saw Tom Baker in Blackadder. I don't think that when I see David Tennant in Broadchurch or whatever it was. But I'm just watching this going, when's he going to say, I want a cup of tea and a slice of cake? He didn't seem to bring anything to the part other than being John Pertwee. Now, maybe that's why he was cast. I don't know. But it seems that the Doctor works better when he's a character actor given a lead role. And Pertwee, he didn't, he didn't do anything that distincted him from anybody else other than he seems to yell at people a lot and he's generally very grumpy with everybody. He's not somebody I really want to hang around with. I don't understand why Joe Hunk hangs around with him. He seems very unpleasant. He's snarky. He's a doll baby. Well, that as well. Yeah, well, I'll get on to her when we talk about the companions, but I didn't, I don't, I mean, he was the longest running doctor up to Tom Baker taking over. So he must have had some measure of popularity and he has done that single I am the doctor and he, he never walked away from the part, but I didn't get the appeal of him. I didn't understand why he was so popular. There, there didn't seem anything that he hung his portrayal of the Doctor on other than he likes riding motorbikes and he likes yelling at people that they're all stupid. But well, I think you got it in one there, Andrew. I mean, oh, right, okay. um, oh. John Pertwee is playing John Pertwee. And, and when is that Pertwee why he was, was cast in the role to be John Pertwee? I, I, I think he was cast in the role to be Doctor Who, but it ended up being I want to be John Pertwee, which means... I want. I don't want to go anywhere weird. I I like ha, you know getting on various forms of motor transportation. I like action-based stories, and uh, I I don't really want to actually pretend to be anything other than myself. But well, he was, he was very I, good at that. Yes, he it, was. You, you got to put it in a little perspective, though. At the time, the only actors you'd had so far are the first Doctor, whose entire role was to be grumpy. I mean, it, it, and supposedly grandfatherly, but really it was a mean grandfather. Um, you had Patrick Trotton, who was brilliant, as far as I'm concerned. But really, yeah. if you boil down his portrayal, he was a clown. He was silly. That was kind of his role. John Pertwee came in in the era of James Bond sort of philosophy, where they wanted him to be suave, cool. They wanted him to be an action hero. And that's what he was. I mean, he, he drove all kinds of different vehicles. He could build gadgets. He built gadgets all day long. He dressed as far as what they were concerned was pretty cool. Like really? That was that was pretty cool in the 70s, was it? Apparently, I guess... Oh, the a cloak. Was, Cloaks it was are a, cool. Like a, a, almost like a pop star was kind of what they were thinking, you know? Um, and he was a cool dude. Now, I've talked to a lot of people, like, and, and well, okay, I shouldn't say a lot. I've talked to some people, including my brother-in-law, who grew up watching John Pertwee, and for him, John Pertwee is the Doctor, and he just thinks he was the coolest Doctor ever, because he was a hero, he was an action hero, he got in fist fights, he got in all kinds of karate fights, he kicked ass, he had companions that, all, Joe kind of sw almost swooned over him, you know, you never had that before, and he was a cool, cool dude. Now, he wasn't always so shouty and angry, and I think by this point, he, he had also started to cut out more of the comedic elements. He used to do a lot of comedy early on. Um, there's, was, I can't remember which Autons one it is, where the Autons are like choking him with the telephone cord, and he's getting all ridiculous looking in his face and stuff. I mean, he did a lot more of uh, comedy stuff early on, and he sort of slowly worked that out of the, out of his system. So by this point, it's pretty serious. 
But uh, I, I don't know. I, I think this might be an example of him being a little more shouty, shouty than normal. Don't you think, though, Shag, that the um, the the James Bondification of this uh, era was more a budget con- concern than anything else? I think it was intentional. I think they. I, I don't. I don't know. You know, I wasn't there. But every every interview I've ever seen, they say that he they were trying to make him more James Bondish. Well, I can see how it being them not having come up with weird aliens and different sets by keeping it very grounded to very earth based adventures would definitely help in keeping the budget low. But mm-hmm. yeah, it does sort of uh, take it out of the whole you know fantastical realm that you know we've come to know Doctor Who for and put it down to a sort of very much James Bond or, you know, a show that was running somewhat concurrently, the Avengers type show. I know you mentioned, Tom, that you had a theory uh, that related this iteration of Doctor Who to the Avengers. And I didn't know if you wanted to put that out here. Well, well, yeah, I mean, you've got this gentleman who dresses as if from another era. uh, Who runs around in a vintage car with a unfortunately... There's no way Joe Grant is anywhere near Emma Peel. <laughs> no. <laughs> Except maybe in the way she dresses. Uh, stupid doll baby. Um, going around England fighting a master, fighting weird master criminals. Or in this, in the case of Doctor Who, one master criminal. Granted, a, amazing. Roger Delgado. I think we all agree here. Roger Delgado was the greatest master of all. Mm-hmm. Wait, not Eric Roberts? What? <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you, Shag. <laughs> yeah, even my wife, who's not a Doctor Who fan, especially the classic stuff, she came in the room while I was watching this, and she's like, oh, it's the good master. <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor I Eric mean, it, it's very, I, I think it's very consciously based on Brian Clemens' uh, aesthetic of the Avengers. And see, that's not a that's not necessarily a bad thing. I, I mean, no. if you're going to if you're going to either rip off or homage something, you know, do it do it with something good. And you know, I mm-hmm. I like the sort of you know '70s spy feel of this, but yeah, I do agree that this Doctor does seem to be really condescending. He's not he's not a lock, likable Doctor that we'd see in some of the earlier, you know, the yeah. Tenet iteration and the Tom Baker iteration, even to some extent in the Peter Davidson iteration. Those mm-hmm. doctors were uh, compassionate and kind, and this one just seems to sort of you know, shout down everyone. You guys, uh, no, no, I, I, you guys need to watch more of Pertwee. He's incredibly compassionate. In fact, he's supposed to represent sort of the, uh, I don't want to say anti-military, but the, the, the Brigadier always represents the shoot the shoot everybody philosophy and he represents the compassionate no let's talk to him let's be their friend you know and then the sea devils get murdered by the brigadier and he's upset at the end and you feel the form and compassionate he's always tapping people on the nose i mean he's an incredibly compassionate doctor maybe it wasn't in this episode i wasn't necessarily thinking along those lines when i watch it because i intimately know the character but he's a very likable very compassionate um he's 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 like he's like a favorite uncle i've seen quite a few um Pertwee episodes, and he does seem more a grump than anything else. He, he's, you know, John Steed. If John Steed was perpetually pissed off at Emma Peel, well, he's frustrated that he's stuck on Earth, and that's where some of that anger comes from. But and he's frustrated with he's working with the Brigadier who tries to kill everything first. But there's still a tremendous amount of compassion for the other people he's helping, and 
I don't know. It, I guess I, it's why I prefer the Liz, you know, the, the season with Liz Shaw to the to the seasons with Joe Grant in that I definitely got a feeling that he had a great deal of affection for Liz and respected her. Whereas I don't get that with Joe. Well, maybe yeah, that's. Well, go ahead. Sorry, Andy. Sean. Go on. No, I was no, just no, going to say, I get what Shag's saying. The end of this episode, the end of this this adventure. Sorry, not the episode. You do get some of that in that Pertry is trying to reason with the the bad guy at the end instead of just letting the the, the brigadier go in all guns blazing. And I liked the story. I mean, it was very much. There's something nasty going on in suburban England, which we've seen thousands of times everywhere else. But the location photography was brilliant. And some of the action set pieces were really good. And I I did like the last episode a lot more than I liked the four that preceded it. Because A, a lot happened. It all seemed to be crammed into that last 25 minutes where stuff started happening. But the Doctor was very let's talk about this, let's try and reach an agreement of some kind, or I will sacrifice myself for these people. So there was some compassion that came through him there. But yeah, in the rest of me, he just seemed to yell at people a lot and just seemed to be perpetually moody. It's like it was his time of the month or something. I don't know whether Gallifreyans have that. <laughs> God. Well, I think, I think, I think you know, to just to make things you know, sort of collective. I think everyone has a really good point. And I think essentially the doctor is very compassionate and he does show that, like Andy said at the end of the show, that he is trying to reason saying that earth is a place that does not be need to be destroyed. And he's trying to protect the people of earth, but with his interaction with people, he's very, he seems very condescending in these episodes, especially to the character of the person, the, the sergeant who's trying to make the, uh, a device to get in through the heat shield. You know, True. he's you know constantly battering him. He's he's not condescending to Joe, but you know, he has some comments in there where he's, you know, remarking on, you know, whether or not she passed her uh, Latin studies in in school. So it's it's kind of a, he has to meet kind of a balance. Uh he's he you can still see that compassion that he has for the entirety of the human race. But in dealing with individuals, he see, still seems a little flustered and a little, a little short with them. He's the first Doctor where you actually get the impression that the Time Lords look on humans almost like dogs. Like we look upon a dog. I just thought he looked on them as if he was just disappointed they didn't know more. Hmm. And disappointed in their behavior, their choices. Mm-hmm. So I'm yeah. disappointed that Chad doesn't know more and <laughs> I treat <laughs> yes. him with contempt. You just proved the point. <laughs> well, I'm on your side, Shag, because um, I'm a Pertwee fan. I've seen most of, if not all of his his um, shows. And um, he can be compassionate, but he does come across grumpy. Uh, I mean, but that's part of his character. And maybe, maybe that's because, like Andrew's saying, he's playing John Pertwee, and maybe that's... Um, where that comes across. So I guess I have to wear a Team Shag t-shirt now. So <laughs> I hang my I, head in shame. <laughs> I'll have to really focus on more Pertwee episodes when I watch them. Because I guess I, I always focus on the, the compassionate moments. I mean, you watch the end of Green Death. Watch the end of Sea Devils. You know, they, they really get to you. And you feel compassion. But maybe maybe he is perpetually pissed off 
and frustrated with the humans around him because he loves the species, he loves the planets, but they keep making really asinine choices. Mm-hmm. And so his frustration is tied to his compassion. And, and so when there's these tender moments with Joe or other th- other times, it's mixed in with him being shouting at the brigadier saying, why are you shooting those people, you idiot? Um, <laughs> and, and maybe maybe it's about, maybe I don't see the anger as much because i'm i'm thinking with them like oh he's absolutely right why are the humans doing this to themselves why are they going to you know start this nuclear power plant or drill to the center of the earth that's going to kill us all they're stupid why are they opening the devil's hump um well like i've only this is only the third fourth john pertwee story i've seen mm-hmm. um it's the only one i've seen in the past 20 years so it possibly isn't fair to judge him entirely on this one performance Oh, this one story. I don't know if this was atypical of the time. The master shows up, does something nefarious, the doctor stops him. <laughs> That's <laughs> definitely not atypical. <laughs> oh, right, okay. So it, well, was, it was typical I mean, of this season, because the master's in every episode of this season, if I remember correctly. Yeah, and he was great. I mean, oh. I love how he gets away from Sergeant Benton at the end. He just puts his cape over his head <laughs> and Benton falls to the floor as if like, I'm terrified of the dark. And then he just walks away. He casually walks away. He gets in Bessie and Yates is shooting at him and missing. Well, I mean, this guy must be the worst marksman to ever hold an army position since the A-team. The guy's in an open-topped car, and they can't hit him. And then the doctor says, "Who kept him around because yeah. he made him look even he better. He made him look competent. And then Brigadier, uh, the doctor says, don't do that. You'll, you'll hurt Bessie. And I'm thinking, I wouldn't worry about him hitting Bessie, the doctor. You know? He, he, he trained at these storm, stormtroopers. <laughs> marksmanship. Was there a sitcom called Dad's Army over there in England? Yes, yeah. there was okay. a sitcom called Dad's Army. Were, were they a bunch of incompetents? Is that what kind of what the deal was? No, okay. they weren't incompetents. They were they were generally holding the fort down at home, and okay. they were they were very much bureaucratic, but they weren't incompetent. So Sergeant Mannering was very much this has to be done by the book, and his men were largely a collection of misfits and ne'er do wells. But it was they weren't incompetent. Okay, because the, the the unit folks are often referred to as Briggs Army as a take on Dad's Army, and I didn't know how much of that translates and what it, you know if it works well with that or not. It kind of does because the Brigadier comes across as the the, the avuncular father figure to this bunch of ragtag army people that don't behave like any soldiers you've ever actually seen in real life. <laughs> don't seem to obey any chain of command. They all seem very public high school to me uh, certainly um benton and yates who, who seem to be the only two unit officers who have any speaking parts apart from the scientist guy who just spends the entire time getting dirtier and dirtier as the doctor yes. just berates him well, wasn't yates there solely to give joe a romantic interest and it never developed Correct. i was gonna that that doesn't work in this episode i never get that she's interested in anyone romantically other than the doctor they they hint at it from time to time. She'll say something like, "Yeah, I've got a date with Mike," but it never goes anywhere. And eventually, they took his character in a different direction. And it may have just been in the books, but they made Mike Yates gay eventually. What? But well, well, it, it doesn't matter anyway because Mike Yates turns traitor every time the wind right. changes. Yeah. Does that yeah. mean that Joe was a fag hag? <laughs> Ouch! Oh, wow. Well, oh, yeah, she was a hag. Didn't Yates? Uh, what was it? It was it was a dinosaur one, wasn't it? Yeah, where he that, that's, that's uh, one of the ones he, where he turns traitor. Yeah, yeah. 
it's where he gets kicked out, I think, as well, or yeah. selectively retires, whatever it was. <laughs> Not by choice. <laughs> Speaking of hags, I'd like to address the character of uh, the White Witch in the story. I thought, uh, <laughs> now, now, who was she played by? Mrs. Brilliant. Because that was the best character in the whole show. She was she was like a cartoon character. She was so funny. I loved it. She but was, but she was she, the only person in that town apparently with a brain. She, she was like the bartender she was, was smart. She was like the sort of creepy version of Mary Poppins that you know just <laughs> decided to drop in the show and make sure everyone knew what the hell was going on. She, I mean, it, it's interesting. I I thought what was interesting about this uh, series was the fact that. Uh, the sort of uh, dichotomy between the doctor's seriousness about science and this character's uh, devotion to the mystical arts and how they played off one each one another. And I thought she was just a really fun character uh, and a and nice addition. Was... She she never she was she never came back. She was only in this one series, yes. wasn't she? Uh, yeah, I'm reliably. I'm sorry, sorry, Dave. Dave. Uh, I'm reliably informed uh, that she, she's apparently called Damaris Heyman. And that she's going to be getting a spin-off directed DVD story featuring Miss Hawthorne, apparently. <laughs> what? It that was announced earlier it. this year, according to one Stephen Lacey, who's not here at the minute. <laughs> she's getting her own right. directed DVD movie. Okay. Awesome. Uh, apparently. I would barely wait. I mean, the I thing I loved about Miss Hawthorne is you got the impression the doctor respected her. She was the only one he respected. Yeah, well, she was the only one who he thought had half a brain. Because everybody in this is just a screaming cliche from beginning to end. The scenes in the pub where they're all just stood around very stiffly holding their pints in their hands, just waiting for the next line to be delivered is no pub I've ever been in. And, all, and the, she was the best one in it because she was so over-the-top comedy. She yeah. is a cartoon character in the middle of this drama about devil worshipping. Mm. Well, and even though that she was all into the devil worshipping and the mystical arts and everything, she wasn't so blindly devoted to it that she wouldn't accept the doctor's explanations. That she was she was perhaps one of the most uh, you know understanding of what was going on and willing to accept that it might be something different than just a simple demonic possession or you know the devil she she, uh, uh, she was a great character in the show and yeah she needs to be she needs to get her own spin-off <laughs> maybe maybe they can guest star the the little down by the river hag from towns of wang chang that would oh, be the best that be great if they had <laughs> yeah, girlfriend she, she could be the descendant of her there you go <laughs> yeah I, okay dave andrew you probably know this when the Morris dancers came out in episode. <laughs> it felt like episode five thousand. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you guys roll your eyes like I did? Oh yeah, yep. but the, the May Day, the May pole thing is a, a ridiculous ceremony that we all have to do when we're at school. Uh, it was never any fun then, but I, I liked the whole Wicker Man feel of that bit. That there's this... <laughs> I was waiting from the go. Oh Jesus! Oh God! Oh Jesus! <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> oh Christ! I, I didn't mind all of that because horrible though it was, it was actually entertaining on some level. Yeah. See, I well, went yeah. 
I went a completely different direction. All I could hear was, we found a witch. May we burn her? Yeah. <laughs> Yo, I heard, we didn't burn him! When that bit came out. When they went, well, when they when Olive showed up, Miss Hawthorne, I immediately thought, burn the witch. <laughs> <laughs> well, that leads into my cast theory because when I was watching the guy that was playing uh, um, the the announcer, all I could see was Eric Idle. I saw Michael Palin, but yeah, well, the same thing, yeah. And then I thought that Miss Hawthorne should be Terry Jones. <laughs> <laughs> And then Professor Horner could be Terry Gilliam. And then uh, the Brigadier would be Graham Chapman. And I have Michael Palin as the master. And then John Cleese as the doctor. And that's the show I wanted to see when I was watching this. Yeah, John Cleese would have been great. I saw Palin doing one of those straight-to-video things from Python. Yeah, I saw Palin rather than Idle. But I did get the exact same vibe from the BBC Three stuff. There is no way in hell that would be on BBC Three. BBC Three is all trash. It may be on BBC Four, but BBC Three's would we show Family Guy and the Honey Boo Boo crap, so that it wouldn't be on BBC Three. Why didn't isn't, isn't that where you guys showed? Isn't that where you guys showed Torchwood? The, yep. the, yeah, the, well, I'm not saying that every now and again, inadvertently, they don't show something good. It's not by mistake, I think. No, I think that's exactly where Torchwood belonged. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tom started on three and then was promoted to BBC Two and then got promoted to BBC One. And then stars. And then stars. <laughs> and then it was all down from there. So BBC Three, I mean, it's you guys mentioned it in, in the summaries. The joke there is just BBC Three, I guess, didn't exist and they thought it would exist in the next few years. So it kind of fit with their unit timing of always being a few years in the future. But BBC, BBC Three didn't come around for like 20 years. No, so. I mean, I've read that there was actually a TV program called BBC Three, but I don't think it was anything like that, as far as I'm aware. No, it was but, a comedy, wasn't it? BBC Three? It was Dogs I, and Funny Out. I think it was... I I read Wikipedia at one point, so we can we know how reliable that is. I think it was some sort of documentary-type thing, um, unless I'm completely misremembering, in which case, feel free to shoot me or whatever. But... Yeah, it was something like a documentary thing that went on for a couple of years that was long gone by the time this would have been happening. Right. But yeah. I, again, it might be due to the... What do you call it? As you were saying about um, them expecting to have a BBC Three. Because the whole unit thing is apparently either happening in the 70s or 80s. And they don't know which. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, supposed to be like five to... Mind on that, yeah. yeah. Well, it's supposed to be like five to ten years in the future, kind of vaguely. And then every so often they'd accidentally tie it down without realizing it. And uh, yeah. they'd just kind of be like, ah, forget it, ignore it. Who's ever going to watch these things again? So. Yeah. <laughs> um, is this, I was watching, we're still on the cast thing, I presume. Yeah, mm-hmm. the characters. Um, Joe Grant is his companion. Largely I know her because she came back for the Sarah Jane Adventures. That's where I know her from. She was insipid, wasn't she? Yeah, as a companion, Joe Grant really didn't do anything for me. I mean, she was attractive, but my God, the whole dippy thing with her starting out. But this really is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. I just, I had that song. I I yeah, and she really did seem to be the epitome of the terrible companion. She's there to yeah. look pretty and say, but what does it all mean, Doctor? And I didn't get that there was anything else to her at all. 
She's she's inca- she's incredibly sweet and incredibly kind, but it really, it kind of, even though I like her, just because it, it does kind of end there. I mean, there's there she's not deep. There's she is dippy. I mean, they 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 bring it right out in her first appearance. She talks about how she got um, she took her O levels of science, I guess, or A levels, whatever. And in the end, she has to admit she didn't pass them. She just took them. So it's, uh, she kind of there just as a as a catalyst for the doctor to you know to, for her to say insipid things and the doctor to correct her. So is that kind yeah. of what she is? Yeah. She's the sweet dippy niece kind of thing uh, who happens to have a crush on him. I think is what it really is. I I, I hate this character. I really do. I, I think now I think part of the reason why she comes off as such an empty headed doll baby was that um, Katie Manning. The actress was seriously nearsighted. So um, throughout her run, because she couldn't wear her glasses, uh, Pertwee took her hand to guide her to her spots. And so she comes off as even more childlike than I think even the, uh, the producers intended. But especially coming after Liz Shaw, Liz Shaw, who is a scientist and who has the doctor's respect and who is really smart and can banter with him to have this basic human lapdog nipping at Dom Pertwee's heels pisses the hell out of me. But consider Liz Shaw was considered a failure as a companion, though, because... She she didn't the, the fans didn't take to her. She wasn't as sexy as they wanted, and she was too brainy as far you know in the early seventies as far as they were concerned she was too brainy. People couldn't relate to her. To me, Liz Shaw is Emma Peel. If we accept that John Pertwee is, uh, you know, John Pertwee is John Steve, which makes Joe Grant, I guess, Tara King. Well, what's Sarah Jane then? Sarah Jane is Sarah Jane. <laughs> she's in the Avengers too. Wow, <laughs> she's that cool. Yes, she should have been in the Avengers. But I, I sorry, I, and I think that that in a way, I think Katie Manning go, goes down in history for those of us who haven't actually didn't actually live through the Pertwee era as the girl who was naked with a Dalek than anything else. God bless her. Yeah, that is that is a nice memory. Mm-hmm. And so were, were Yates and Benton regular companions? Kind yeah. of. Right. Yeah. I mean, all, all the seasons had uh, the, Brigadier, the Brigadier, Yates, and Benton were all regulars. Um, they weren't in every episode, but they were certainly in most of them. Uh, then you had, as you said, Liz Shaw, then you moved to Joe Grant, then you moved to Sarah Jane. But those were the consistent ones. There weren't really any other unit people that would reappear consistently. So the guy that the doctor kept yelling at, he didn't come back and smack him at some point. No, but I'm pretty sure they just cloned him and put him in that Doctor Who David Tennant episode with the bus in the desert. Because... (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Lee Evans, yeah. It was the exact same character. You know, glasses, goofy, unit scientist guy. I can't remember the name of the Planet of the Dead or something? Yeah. Yes, Planet yeah. of the Dead. Yeah. <sighs> Best forgotten. Okay. Otherwise well, uh, known as the one with the hot chick from Jekyll. Oh, yeah, that is true. <laughs> 
Okay, well, Shag, you mentioned that there were some spinoffs that came out of this uh, out of the show. Did you want to talk about any of those? Well, there's not a lot. Is it, what's interesting is that you know the other shows that we've done, there always seems to be a lot to talk about with you know the the downstream impact of those episodes. This one doesn't have a lot, which is kind of in and of itself sort of interesting. Um, you know, there was a novelization that came out in 1974. It was written, written by Barry Letts and with cover by Chris Achilleos. So it's a great-looking cover. And Barry, one of the things we didn't mention, by the way, that this episode – this is not spinoff related, but the episode was the, – the author was attributed to uh, somebody, Leonard. I can't remember his name. Guy, Leopold. Guy, Guy Leonard. Guy Leopold. Yeah. But, yeah. but that's actually wasn't mentioned Barry Letts. in the thing. What's that? Yeah. It wasn't mentioned when I said written by Barry Letts under the pseudonym. Yes, you did, Dave. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. yeah. See, I don't listen. You talk funny, so I can't understand most of the words you say. So That's okay. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but the, the, the biggest uh, sort of... to looking funny, Shaq. Right. The biggest <laughs> spinoff thing was a made-for-DVD or VHS video uh, called Deimos Rising, uh, which is about... Uh, it, it sort of follows the story on Earth after years later with the Brigadier's daughter as they encounter Gog again and another um, demon. And, and, and it, it, it um, I've never seen it, but it came out in 2004 and it apparently is regarded pretty well. It was done by Real Time Pictures, which was a group that was doing sort of Doctor Who spinoff material. They had done a Centauran story. They'd done a unit story. They've done it, did a few of them and some of them and did, I, did some were pretty good. Anyway, this one is regarded as one of their better ones. It was sort of really a two-hander, but and it's supposed to be kind of moody and, and creepy. And um, anyway, it's made me want to think about going and picking it up now. So anyway, that's called Deimos Rising. The only other really thing to speak of is that there's an action figure set coming out <laughs> in, in August. I know it's really—I mean, there's not much there. There's an action figure coming out with the Brigadier and the Master and Gog, and then there's. Don't you mean Azal? No, I'm looking at it. It's got Gog. No, wait. The yeah, the little, the little. Oh, Bach. No, Bach. Bach. Yeah. Why am I? Yeah, I don't know. Gogs what Gogs. What JSA is I'm thinking of Gremlins and Grinny. I'm thinking of Gremlins and Grinny Gogs. Sorry, that's an okay. old <laughs> ancient show. I don't know if anyone even remembers it, but. No. Um, and then they got mentioned a few times in different things. Like for example, there was a, a book during the wilderness years called Interference by Lawrence Miles, in which there's a, a sort of a voodoo. Time Lord cult called Faction Paradox, and they were flying through space in a Damon carcass. I've heard about the the Faction They're the guys that are wearing the skulls in their faces and, yeah, and the you, likes. Oh, okay. You would really dig them because it's really screwed up. Then apparently in the Satan Pit, they do mention the planet Damos, and apparently it mm-hmm. is referred to also a little bit in the Last of Time Lords. But that's it. For an episode that's so well regarded, and is, I, they, I think everyone, the voting is it always comes out like the second highest John Pertwee episode. You mm-hmm. think there'd be more to it, more stuff. Well, and especially because you've got the whole sort of ancient aliens thing, and this or these aliens that have come to Earth and manipulated humanity and kind of directed the way that uh, humanity is supposed to have gone. You would think that yeah. they would have taken that a, a different direction and made a bigger deal out of it. But you know, it's mm-hmm. just been this sort of one-off episode and not really mentioned all that much. And, and it ties in a bit with the whole Eric Von Danian zeitgeist that was going on in the world around yeah, the during early the seventies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That whole thing that, yes, humans, you know, didn't evolve naturally, you know, homo, homo sapiens shouldn't, the, the Neanderthal man should have been the prominent race and homo sapiens didn't. And there was manipulation from otherworldly events that caused this. So the fact that, yeah, they didn't 
go in and uh, take that sort of idea and bring it more into the Doctor Who mythos is kind of disappointing because, yeah, that would perfectly work at this time period. Mm-hmm. And I killed the conversation. Oh, no, no I, I, okay, I've got something I want I want to throw out here uh, about the structure of the Pertwee era because the Pertwee era is known for really long stories. I mean, I think the average length for stories was six to seven episodes. This one is relatively short. This one's a, a standard four four parter. This is a five parter. Five parter, yeah. Yeah, th- sorry. This is a five. This is a five parter. Um, you're right. You're right. But how do you f- now? Some of us haven't experienced a lot of this. How do you feel about that? I think that that it ends up with a lot of padding. I think that whole sequence with uh, summer summer's Isle light in episode four is pure padding. Yeah, and we get we get kind of in the second episode where the doctor is essentially knocked out for the majority of the episode. So we have an episode that's almost completely without the doctor in it. So maybe because of the production schedule and them having to draw out the length of the episodes, they had to do a lot of these, you know, six episode arcs that, you know, allowed more, like I said, padding in there. Didn't allow, you know, more quick you know, four episode uh, arcs. Yeah, I mean, I know Shag has has referenced the Sea Devils a couple of times in this conversation. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, I think it's like episode two, which is just, well, here we are visiting the Master. Now we're going to leave. Now we're going to come back to visit the Master again <laughs> so he can throw a, a knife at me. Uh, is What is the point of all that? It's it's without a doubt that they're too long. There's no doubt yeah. about that. Now I will say by the by John Pertwee's final season, they really were starting to get more into the four episode stories. Yeah. But uh, like as a Who fan prior to 2005, I loved the six episode stories. I always got excited. I'd be like, woo, you know, this is gonna be a good long one. You know, really meaty. Got into it, enjoyed it. Post 2005, I honestly have a hard time watching most old Doctor Who now. Yeah. Unless it's really one that I'm absolutely in love with. It's tough because it's like I want I'm, 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 you know, I'm on that instant gratification. You know, I want it now. I don't want to wait three hours for this damn thing. And, you know, episode three being an entire wasted episode or whatever. So, yeah, this, this yeah, one I mean, did feel long at five episodes. I do think they could have lopped off 20 minutes worth of material. and This would have been a good four parter. I, I can go back and watch old ones a lot. I, I still love trawling through the Tom Baker DVDs. There right. are some times where I think the new ones are too fast and they're dumping an awful lot of story at you through Matt Smith just talking fast. Yeah. And I miss, I do sometimes miss the more leisurely way they will they will impart the story information. But it's a fine line because this at five episodes, you're saying this is one of the shorter Pertwee ones, this felt too long. Mm-hmm. They could have lost an episode of this and it wouldn't have made a blind bit of difference. Well, how long is Inferno Shag? Isn't that uh, that's, that's seven, seven episodes? Seven. Yeah, that's, yeah. yeah. Now, that's I gotta like watch the average for a, a Pertwee episode. Well, I'd say the first season probably, yeah, but later on it's it, it, it varies. But I, um, I want to rewatch Inferno because in my mind, that's a fantastic one. Just love the hell out of Inferno. But it's probably, and, and honestly, a lot of the Tom Baker ones suffer this too, is a whole lot of going back and forth between the same sets over mm-hmm. and over and over and over. And they used to do that a bunch, you know? 
Yeah, well, a lot of it is you've got to adjust your mindset to the time. I mean, the beginning of this one is incredibly stagey in a lot of the way it's shot, especially the interior scenes. I was surprised by how much external photography we got in this one, pleasantly. So, So it did kind of balance out the fact that we did get a lot of shots of them lounging around and sitting around tables and in pubs and things. But the external photography was very good for the most part, except there were a couple of scenes where they really should have done some ADR because the wind was obscuring what the actors were saying. Mm. Yeah, I noticed that on the DVD, there was a lot of there was a lot of background noise in the exterior shots. But you know, I think they could have chalked that up because most of the exterior shots were between the brigadier and the doctor at the heat barrier, quote unquote. <laughs> and they could have they could have just you know made that that sound was the sound that the heat barrier is giving off. So I, I took that uh, I took that as you know what was. Going I mean, on. for me. If you're going beyond four episodes on a Doctor Who serial, it should be something really epic. Like, Genesis of the Daleks, to me, deserved its six episodes. Even the giant clams? Okay, we can deal without (laughs) the giant clams. But for most of the Pertwee six and seven episodes ones, it just seems to be Pertwee noodling around in various vehicles. One wasn't that kind of the, wasn't that kind of the modus operandi of uh, you know Pertwee? Wasn't yeah. he the kind of person who wanted to do all these sort of actiony things? He wanted yeah. to ride motorcycles. He wanted to drive fast cars. He wanted to ride around in helicopters. He was I a mean, speed uh, addict. He was definitely somebody who loved just, do, which is why you get a lot of the Doctor jumping into a helicopter or jumping into a hovercraft or jumping into. The Who-Mobile, which we don't get till the last season, right, Shag? Yeah. That's you your know, hovercraft right there. Yeah, just jumping. <laughs> just he And he loved those things in real life. I mean, he kept the Who-Mobile <laughs> for many, <laughs> many years until he eventually sold it. But he had it written in the contract when he sold it to the, the person. He had the right to come whenever he wanted and give the thing a ride. <laughs> nice. That's um. awesome. <laughs> I love that kind of stuff. He was a fun guy. I, yeah, I no, he was he was a great guy. I don't know if he was a great doctor. He was. <laughs> okay, <laughs> end of conversation. <laughs> See how that works? Yeah. But I think uh, there's one thing that we can say. One, Shag is wrong. And <laughs> two, I think we can all agree that Delgado owned the master. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a scene in, I think it's episode four, I think, where he's he's talking and he does that weird hand thing, you know, that Doctor Strange does. <laughs> and he's wearing yeah. the red cloak and he just looks like Doctor Strange. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that, you know, one of the little neat quirky things, all the satanic rituals and all this stuff, which was pretty controversial for the time, I believe. I think the BBC kind of had to, you know, fiddle fart around it. Because they didn't want to upset any any people who are watching this. One of the things about a lot of the satanic sayings that he was he was saying were basically backwards versions of nursery rhymes. I heard the whole incantation to bring Azal into the world essentially was Mary had a little lamb said backwards. Absolutely so, true. So take that for what you will. Mary yeah. had a little lamb. Well, an- another th- another thing. Another thing too is his that red cloak you talked about. He was wearing. 
apparently on it there were some symbols around the around the collar area. Mm-hmm. If I'm reading this right, and this has come from Wikipedia, so you trust her for whatever it is, but yeah. it's the 16th century occult alphabet known as Theban, and from left to right they translate as Master. Oh, okay, cool. Which is actually really fitting for the character too. That's something he would totally do because you know he's all into branding. He's sort of like Bruce right. Wayne. He he tries to brand himself every <laughs> chance he gets. You know, <laughs> monogram shirts. Right. I mean, he totally <laughs> would. <laughs> An excellent idea. Kind of hard to, to remain inconspicuous, though, I would have thought, if you got the master written on your shirt collar. <laughs> That's in a now, language no one reads anymore. That's now, true. Delgado, he, he, was he the first iteration that we had of the master? Yeah, absolutely first. Yeah. Yes, yes. Okay. And uh, I like the Clark far, Kent. Oh, I like the Clark Kent. Uh, you know, he uses the uh, the Clark Kent glasses, glasses. to hide. Yes. Oh, look. Mm-hmm. No, I'm 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 Vicar Magisters. <laughs> No, I'm the master. I'm Magistus. I'm the master. He so, says his shirt off. He's got a giant M with master written <laughs> across the top. Yeah, that was in the outtakes. Yeah, I love the hand signals with the with his minion um, that's standing behind him when the person comes up and talks to him, and then the guy walks away, and he just takes his. He doesn't say anything to him. He just takes his hand and points, and the guy runs off to go nab the person or throw him in the trunk or just awesome. The master is awesome. So cool. yeah. Along along those lines, you know, he's, he's his character's famous for hypnotizing people. But I oh, found it interesting. There were a couple characters in this story he couldn't hypnotize. Right. He couldn't. He, Which he is, could not do uh, Miss Hawthorne. She broke his hole on her. So I just I thought that was really strange when I saw that. I'm like, he's supposed to be the master at this sort of thing. No, no pun intended. And so I was like, okay, this is it shows either his powers are waning or he's just really up against some really fervent people. Stuff this woman in a box. Right, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you talked about the rituals and stuff like that. Another interesting thing is they went out of their way not to talk about like God and things like that in the episode. And that was intentional. And they didn't they really want didn't they really didn't touch on they kind of touched on Satanism, but yeah, they definitely shied away from the whole Christianity effect, except for the fact that it was set in a church and that the master was a vicar. Uh, in right, fact, but... they even had parts where they couldn't do things in the church. It was in a cavern underneath the church, rather right. in like the uh, vestibule or the vestiary of the church. Yep. So, yeah, and the they cavern... couldn't. Oh, they could. Ca- could... Go, Go ahead, Dave. Now, the cavern was originally going to be the crypt underneath, but they had to rename it for that reason. Mm-hmm. The, that was the whole thing about that. Makes sense. Yep. It's just wild that they could talk about the devil throughout the whole thing, but they couldn't mention God. It's interesting. <laughs> But yeah, the whole the whole thing with that. Apparently, in um, I was watching a documentary about the making of demons, and it turns out that some of the people wouldn't go back to the church again because they thought they'd desecrated it with their satanic rituals because oh they thought gosh. it was so real. Same goes with the blowing up of the church. Apparently, someone was supposed to get married in it, and they had to send a couple of people down to see that the church wasn't blown up. And <laughs> apparently they even, the BBC even got complaints about it. Uh, they shouldn't be blowing up historical artifacts or historical buildings. It was, it, the model was fine, but it wasn't that yeah, believable. Only a model. Yeah, which goes to prove that the stupidity of the people who watch that whodunit show and think they're actually killing contestants <laughs> goes back many, many decades. Yeah. <laughs> television and yeah well heck it goes back to the the orson wells war of the worlds Mm -hmm. thing people thought you know that was 
the end of the world at the time. So, yeah, it's not surprising that there are gullible people out there. Yeah. I thought the special effects were, were quite good for the time, for the most part. <coughs> Uh, again, there's a very Derek Meddings look to the church exploding that I quite liked. What about, like uh, exploding and coming back together? That was fairly cool. I know it was just yeah, reverse photography, but, but, but it was Bach, for oh, God's sakes. No, that was cool. He's right. That was actually really well done. Much better than uh, Azal or whatever his name is growing large and then later on getting all weird fried energy zapping. There's a cute little teeny, tiny, teeny little alien somewhere on the floor. <laughs> don't step Careful. on him get before you step right this yeah, all right, is small, that one is far away <laughs> alright I, I got a I got a plot point question there's a lot of little nitpicky things that are kind of fun to talk about but I got a major plot point question to ask here is anyone else bothered by the whole storyline concept of love equals magic kind of crap that comes up in stories all the time and in this case you know Azal's has the upper hand he, th- this is done and done. But then the fact that Joe just stands up, jumps up, and is willing to sacrifice herself ends the whole thing. That's just what beats it because love yeah, wins everything. I'm just going shooter, shooter. <laughs> I just, I can't. Go ahead. No, it's like Kirk talking the computer into blowing itself up. Yes, that's, that's basically exactly. all it was. <laughs> that's exactly what I thought. I thought your classic Star Trek, you know, foil where Kirk confuses the computer by giving it a logical uh, anomaly, a logic problem, and the 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 bad computer can't figure it out, so it blows itself up. So, yeah, that's kind of what I saw as the out for this show. But it's not really explaining why Azal was driven to that, because he was not a computer. He hmm. was a thinking being, well, at least as far as we know. So why would he, uh, you know, the doctor says, well, he, he was driven to that because he could not understand the choice. Eh, kind of lame. Uh, still yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't work for me. I mean, I've seen some retconning where people say that Azal's powers were based on negative emotions and things like that, and the fact that Joe did something altruistic, it like rebounded the energy and fried himself with what he had shot at the doctor. But ah, that's just total retconning. Well, they do state in the program that's how they're summoning him. They need the negative emotions, which have psionic power. Mm. Yeah, they do okay. say that really. So it sounds like there's a lot of like weak support for like, well, it kind of worked, and then, but not a lot of anybody on the real side of it. Is that fair to say? Pretty much. Yeah, it, it works to end the story in the allotted <laughs> time frame. You know, it's okay. not perfect, but it's an explanation. You either buy into it or you don't. At that point, I think. And I got a question for Dave and Andrew. Um, the title of the story has a clear misspelling that like a e thing what the hell that's not in the what is what is that crap it's like all the spelling of demons um primarily because like shag's already mentioned they didn't want to mention god and actually i went out of the way to not talk about god in the story for fear of offending anybody so the demons spelling is a yieldy spelling of the word that they wanted instead of using the word demon they just didn't want to use the word demon for the same reason and I'm never sure how to pronounce the damn thing. I always, I always say Damon, but if you know something I, I called with, Damon, that yeah. kind of confusing. But the Damon sounds like a like a 70s sitcom. Or a bad boy <laughs> band. Damon's. <laughs> Look, it's Bach and Azal. They all turn around and face the camera and smile like, hey! 
And they throw Matt spittle Damon. at them. <laughs> <laughs> the Matt Damons. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if only Matt Damon could have blown up in this episode. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. It's just a succession of boring actors boring us with their political opinions. It's not a show that would go far, I think. Oh, I don't know. You don't know what would happen in the U.S. Watch anything. That's true. Let me throw this out. What exactly was Bach supposed to be beside a really stupid monster outfit? He was supposed to be a statue, wasn't he? Gargoyle. Gargoyle. Oh, was he like 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 an android, like like a, an android servant of Azal? No, he was just a, a gargoyle given life. Because yeah. they blow him up, he turns into stone, and then he just reforms himself. So maybe life's not the right word, but he was a gargoyle brought to being to do his bidding. Because as soon as everything ends, he just turns back into a stone gargoyle. Yeah, he's supposed to guard the church. Okay. Leyland, Chaplain of Wings, five rounds rapid. Yeah. <laughs> I've I got to be honest with you, the unit were pretty crap in this, apart from the Brigadier, who was just awesome in every scene he was in. Yeah. Because he's like, I've got to go to this bloody function tonight. I'll, I'll stay in touch. And he's, the last line of the episode is fantastic, simply because of the Brigadier, where mm-hmm. the guy says, would you like to dance, Brigadier? And the Brigadier just gives him that look that says, that, that's an excellent um, offer, but I'm going for a drink. See ya. <laughs> Essentially, don't ask, don't tell. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you want to do, Mike. You go ahead and do it, bro. I'm going to the pub. I, uh... I, I, I like I, now see the unit guys. I just find them funny. They, I can't possibly believe them as military soldiers, but I find them funny. Like I like the le- bit where Benton's talking to Yates and Mike says, "You know, first things first. Ben's like, "Oh, okay, breakfast." You know, yeah. it's just Benton's I like all about food. Exactly. <laughs> they're just uh, they're endearing because they're so ridiculous. Now that famous line, "The chap with the wings, five rounds rapid." I was reading here. Apparently, Terrence Dix almost cut the line, and uh, let's head or put it back in. Why did so, he almost cut it? I don't know. Uh, this was revealed in a DVD featurette. Terrence Dix said that he uh, he originally had cut that line and Let's made him put it back in. Right, okay. Cool. So, so do we have anything else to sort of wrap this episode up? Any uh, final thoughts on it? Or are we do we have anything more to get onto it? Or anything more okay, to talk I, I just, about it? Do you think that Let's and Dix were right in deciding not to recast the Master when Delgado tragically died after this serial no he died after um no wait was it this one i think because this is the, this is his last no no story. no he, he shows up in no he's uh he shows up in sea devils next i get confused sometimes but yeah he, di- he died after was okay it, he died after his last serial sure fine that's fine yes let's, let's put it that way do you okay. think let's and Dix were correct in deciding not to recast him. Yes. I'll agree because he he made such an indelible remark, an indelible character, and he made, he sort of defined it, and it's I kind mean, of difficult to follow up uh, after that, even though they did bring the Master back as a yeah. villain for him. You know, it's... I mean, it's it, just it, not it, as, because such a, an indelible link that, for goodness sakes, when Anthony Ainley was finally cast, they made him look as much like Roger Delgado as they could. Mm-hmm. Only with a gay pirate outfit. <laughs> <laughs> Why is the rum gone? <laughs> 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 
But I, I also get the impression that that the Eric Sauer, John Nathan Turner didn't understand the master's character as well as Letts and, and Dix did because he went from being an accumulator of power to I think I'm going to fuck with King John today so the Magna Carta never gets signed. Yeah, but it regenerated, so personality changed. Well, they, 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 they you're right to some extent. They misunderstood the character. They saw the character as villain of the week, mm-hmm. which, is, which is what he was in the John Pertwee era. But he had more of a purpose and a mission, whereas they just kept the villain of the week aspect of it in, in the Peter Davison era. So, yeah, they, they misused the character. And I think it was the right thing not to recast the character. Roger Delgado was such an integral part of the John Pertwee era. I mean, it, and apparently he was well loved by everybody. Yeah, I mean, he's part of the reason Pertwee left the show. It was uh, It was Space War, by the way. It was Space War. After Space War, he died. Um which is the one with the, the Draconians and all that. Oh, I love the Draconians. Good stuff. But, um, I mean, you know, it's, it's hard to say because, you know, what if they had recast him and what if they got somebody brilliant and had gone on to do another three seasons with him or something and we'd all be going, how could they not recast him? So I guess that's possible. But I'm personally glad they didn't because I, I don't think it would have been done as well. Hmm. Um, it's, I got one more quick point. As far as the shouty doctor and all that, you described him, Thomas, as um, angry all the time, yells at everybody, and thinks I knew this was coming. Superior. <laughs> so we're going to have a discussion somewhere down yes, the line about whether Colin <laughs> Baker or John Pertwee is the better doctor. And my friend, John Pertwee will win every time. I actually have referred to Colin Baker in the past as being the Pertwee doctor notched up to about 55. <laughs> so uh, I, I am very much aware of these similarities. I, but as I've always contended, I think it's not Baker that's the problem. It was the production company that did not, the production crew around him that did not know how to best exploit Baker's strengths. I couldn't agree more. And Big Finish has proven that. That's not a theory. That's a fact. So yeah. I'm just disappointed there wasn't enough Venusian uh, jiu-jitsu in this. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I heard that. that and, and yeah, I was... He doesn't do much of anything in terms of doing the little fighty-fighty, does he? Yeah, no, he, he rides a motorcycle. He runs away. That's about <laughs> it. He gets beat up by a bunch of cricketeers. That's true. He and he gets along. wrapped around a maypole. So, yeah. Not really right, his if, best action scenes. If you're gonna if you're gonna take the master into custody, this is after he did the daring cloak escape with Benton and gets driven right. by, by the car. Okay, he's a master of hypnotism. Why wouldn't you just one put either put a bag over his head or gag him or blindfold him or something? No, he stands royally in the top of the car with all the guards behind him with their guns pointed at him and drives away like, yes, I've won. And you could hear the crowd booing him. Did you hear hear the townspeople? Swoo-boo, says he drove triumphantly away in the unit jeep. Do you think he killed the original vicar? Oh, of course. Oh, yes. Of course he did. Well, I, I got the same thing that Bill just said. I got as soon as he got around that corner, he just did his Jedi mind trick thing on the driver, and he was off. And he walked away. Yeah, yeah, he just he just turned around. I am the master. Right. All right. Where do you want to go? Why do you think 
the whole hypnotism angle got dropped when he was brought back. Who? Uh, the master. Yes. You mean the the what's his face? The gay the, pirate version. Yes. He did. No, he's, he he still he still had it sometimes, but it I think it was something about that that version of him that really just made it work. But mm. um, now here's the thing about the, honestly the reason Roger Delgado's character got arrested at the end of this episode is he had been in every story in season eight, every single story he was in, and then at the, Demons was actually or Damons or Shamalama Ding Dong Demons whatever was the season. It was the season finale. And so this was the conclusion of an entire season story arc, and that's why he actually got arrested this time. Mm-hmm. And the next, we don't see him again until midway through the following season, and he's actually in prison, and he's pulling an Al Capone, he's running everything from in the prison. So that, that was the reason why they actually allowed him to be arrested and why he didn't just you know, pull the Jedi mind trick when they pulled around the corner. It's because it's a season finale. He wanted some downtime. He wanted a little rest. It's true. You know, one of the interesting to show you how much the master had become part of this show and how important Roger Delgado was to the show. This uh, one of these episodes, I don't remember which episode it is, is the only episode ever to have a cliffhanger of which the master is actually in danger. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, the one that, where he summons us all for the uh, look who, last look who time. Was all. Right. But that's how much a part of the show he was. And suddenly the master's in danger. So they get a cliffhanger out of it. That's crazy. True. That would never happen with Anthony Ainley. <laughs> or Eric Roberts. Or John Sim. Have I mentioned how much I can't stand Eric Roberts? In anything? Maybe I, Eric I, like, I quite liked it when Batman dropped him from a... a <laughs> <laughs> oh, if Batman had only dropped the master from a from a third story. Maybe Eric Let's Roberts... Let's talk about the Asian child again. <laughs> oh... We should have Eric Roberts as Azal. <laughs> I got to admit, I, even though it, it, it's kind of, you know, it's obvious indicative it's low budget, I thought that the mask was actually pretty effective. Which mask? For Azal. Azal. He was better than I expected him. Like, better, he was better than I remembered him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bach made my wife openly laugh when she saw him. <laughs> because he's a pitiful, laughable character, Shag. And he's got the damn puppy dog tongue sticking out. (laughs) Yeah, he's real cute till he vaporizes you. Right. (laughs) Shoots a little electricity out of his face. Wait, I'm your friend. No, friend, remember. (laughs) Gone. (laughs) You know, now that I think about it, and I didn't see this in my research research anywhere, I think I read a really great short story where it was Br- the brigadier and he was having to write those those things no commanding officer ever wants to write which is a letter to the family after one of the, their child has died and he's having to write a letter to the family about one of those soldiers that was vaporized god <laughs> and it was it wasn't a comedy i mean it's as ridiculous as it sounds it was him trying to struggle how to explain you know that their son died saving the country but how ridiculous is that he got a beat by like a 4 foot tall stone gargoyle and there's right. no remains left, and he can't even really tell him anything because it's top secret anyway. Horrible training accident. Move on. Right. <laughs> so, but it was it was a nice piece. You of had a lot of training accidents, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, I tell you. Yeah. <laughs> but it really was a nice piece because it kind of made you feel for the brigadier because you know, like we said, he was one of the best actors in the in the episode, and also you get a sense for how he felt about his command. So, mm-hmm. I have to figure out what story that was. It's good. Brigadier is a freaking badass character. Period. He really is. 
Well, do we have any closing thoughts you want to wrap this up with? I've remembered something ironic about the heat shield. Tell us. Apparently, apparently it was snowing where they were filming the heat shield. <laughs> no! They had to wait for the snow to melt. Yeah, there was one scene where the doctor was talking to the scientists when they were just starting to build a little thing to get them in there. <clears throat> and if you look in the background, there was snow all over the ground. So, yeah, that heat shield really wasn't all that effective. That's really, hilarious. No. That is a riot. <laughs> oh, and then they went through the rainbow of colors when they uh, when they got it to open. <laughs> Apparently tinsel and Vaseline on the lens. <laughs> wow. Nice. Yeah. Uh, it's a rainbow. Double well, rainbow. Double <laughs> rainbow. <laughs> well, all right. Good question. I mean, did you guys like it? I mean, I don't know oh, that we... Yeah. Oh, was it, yes. was it good? Was it great? Was it eh? It's you know, of the, of, of the of the era episodes that I've seen, uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I will I will agree with Thomas in saying that he does seem kind of condescending to his characters, but the Doctor is a character who who really is a lot smarter than pretty much everyone else on Earth. But uh, overall, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun with it. I enjoyed the master showing up it was great and then getting captured for once (laughs) (laughs) not disappearing off in his TARDIS (laughs) it was an episode too long but I actually liked the story a lot more than I liked John Pertwee so maybe I'll give him another chance and see whether if it was more this one that I didn't like than than him generally but he's still Wurzel Gummidge (laughs) <laughs> yes, he is. I I've seen some of those, and and those are he can really. D- what is that thing he does where he there's a special sp- speak that he does, Andy? It, it's you have to. Oh, I can't even describe it. It's so the words. Yeah, has his own speaking accent language thing. Yeah, he's great as Wurzel Gummidge. You go go find him on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Well, he was a song and dance man before he became the Doctor, so that's probably Wurzel Gummidge is probably more in keeping with his sensibility. Mm-hmm. Especially after I'm sure Barry Letts shouted him, "Enough with the fucking funny faces!" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in, in Wurzel Gummidge, he gets to indulge his funny faces to his heart's content. <laughs> well, I think one thing we could all agree on: we'd all like to hit it with Miss Hawthorne. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Maybe a three, a threesome with Joe Grant and and Miss Hawthorne. Oh, oh. Joe Grant to be a hate fuck. <laughs> <laughs> this whole, this and, took a really dark turn at the end. <laughs> and scene. <laughs> oh no, Bach ha- Bach ha- has to be in there watching. Oh, <laughs> his his tongue his tongue's ready to go. <laughs> NZ. <laughs> no, wait, wait. Azal in the horns. And <laughs> scene. Yes, I do. The <laughs> <laughs> thing about horns are important. Horns, are, impo- horns <laughs> are important, Joe. Really, Doctor? <laughs> <laughs> Let me show you my horns. Yes. <laughs> an entirely different kind of Doctor Who fanfiction. I don't want to play it out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Because unfortunately, show. it gets um, 
pretty badly, pretty close to expressed when we get to the Colin Baker error. <laughs> Everybody wants to rape Perry. Uh, can we make this end? <laughs> yes. Yes, we can. Good night, everybody. <laughs> Pleasant dreams. Oh, is, uh, All right, I'm pulling the plug, you little time horns. <laughs> Thank God. Please don't hear this talk. You can sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. Simply click the PayPal link on our website, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the 2TrueFreaks at the same time. Welcome to Amazon. I love you. Visit our brand new website at 2TrueFreaks.com. 2TrueFreaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. Join our forum at ForumForGeeks.com, where you can discuss all of the shows on our feed with us and your fellow listeners. You can find 2TrueFreaks on Facebook. Just search for 2TrueFreaks. And hey, you can friend me, Scott Gardner, on Facebook, too. My name is spelled S-C-O-T-T-G-A-R-D-N-E-R. You can friend me on Facebook, too, if you can find me. Now available, Two True Freaks t-shirts. See our website for details. Two True Freaks is a very proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. You can check that out at www.comicspodcast.com, where you can hear our new episodes when we put them up. We are also members of the League of Comic Book Podcasts. For more information, visit comicbooknoise.com slash league. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? Thanks for listening. And join us every Monday for new episodes of Two True Freaks. We were finally invited aboard one of these spacecraft which landed near Ann Arbor, Michigan on October the 24th of 1954. This is a drawing of the craft. As I was leaving the craft, the commander, Soltek, said, soon others of your people will be able to have an experience similar to this.